Afghanistan marks a year of the Taliban in power. Can India and the world do anything to make the Taliban keep their promises on girls' education, on terrorism, an inclusive government? Or is the international world order really a thing of the past? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. This is actually episode number 75 and thank you for joining us on this journey. August 15th marked a somber anniversary for Afghans. One, the Taliban celebrated, but hundreds of thousands of Afghans in exile, as well as many inside the country, mourned as the day that they lost their country to the terrorist group. Inside Afghanistan, of course, the story is more complex. The Taliban that came back to power after 2001 called August 15th Victory Day. They took out processions bearing their own Islamist flag, it's called the Shahada, not the red, green and black flag of the Afghan Republic that still flutters at many embassies. Dozens of women, brave Taliban police and even gunfire to come out and protest. They called for jobs for women, for freedom, for girls' education and other rights. The United Nations has not yet in this year allowed the Taliban to occupy the Afghan seat. No country still recognizes the Taliban regime, but several foreign missions are open in Kabul, including, of course, India, which reopened its mission in June 2022, sending a small team of diplomats and a large contingent of security personnel, but no ambassador as yet. In terms of the other countries, there's China, Russia, Iran, Pakistan, Turkey, Indonesia, their missions are all open. Japan is expected to open soon. Then Gulf countries like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan all have functioning missions in Kabul now. The European Union has a resident delegation over there, a slight difference, and the United States has actually asked Qatar to represent its interests as what is called a protecting power over there. Meanwhile, the Taliban regime receives ministers from around the world, including Indian officials, and Taliban delegations are invited to international multilateral conferences abroad, leading one senior official to actually say the question of recognition for the Taliban regime is more or less settled. Afghanistan is being described today, one year later, as a humanitarian disaster with health emergencies, hunger, malnourishment, food shortages all on the rise in the country. Here's how one former Afghan professor and an exile now, Mariam Safi, described the situation at one United Nations Security Council briefing. Listen in. As this council is well aware, there has been a rapid deterioration of women's rights since the Taliban seized power. You have heard from multiple Afghan women and the UN about restrictions on women's movement, dress, access to education and work. While the Taliban have announced lifting of some of these restrictions, it remains to be seen if they follow through on these commitments. Women's access to justice and due process has been severely curtailed due to the absence of an independent functioning judicial system. Freedom of expression along with civic space has almost entirely disappeared. Nearly 70% of media outlets have closed and 72% of the journalists who have lost their jobs are women. Repression of women's rights appears to be central to the Taliban's vision for Afghanistan. So one year later, you see that picture emerging. The Taliban has not only clamped down on the rights of many sections of Afghan society, it has actually broken several promises that it made to the international community. And let's just take you through these broken promises so you can see how the situation is one year later on them. The first commitment, of course, is 
the one it broke when it took Kabul by force. Despite commitments made by the Taliban for the Doha Agreement, the Taliban overthrew a democratically elected government of President Ashraf Ghani and took Kabul and other cities in Afghanistan by force. The second on women's rights and girls' education. This is perhaps the most egregious broken promise. And it was made at round after round of talks in Doha and Moscow. We heard the Taliban delegation say they would not do this. Instead, the Taliban has disbanded the Women's Affairs Ministry, replaced it with a vice and virtue ministry. In fact, it's dismissed all women in government. There's no political participation at present. It doesn't allow girls into classrooms from grade 6 to 12. Segregation, severe restrictions on those who are allowed to study, which has really led to many underground secret schools like this one coming up. Uh, the Taliban has also decreed that women must cover faces, including television anchors, uh, where they enforce that rule. They decreed that women can't travel long distances without a male chaperone either. So clearly a very, very restrictive time for the Taliban harking back, for women in the Taliban regime harking back to 20 years ago. It has also broken all promises on the inclusive government. It's called itself an interim government with acting ministers, but it has made no steps towards forming that inclusive government with other former leaders like Hamid Karzai, like Abdullah Abdullah, women, minorities, other groups that chose to stay on in Afghanistan but have not been engaged with by the Taliban. Then come the commitments on terrorism. It's there in the Doha Agreement, but contrary to that commitment, the Taliban-run Afghanistan remains a safe haven for terror groups like Al-Qaeda. A United Nations report, in fact, said this month uh, the killing of Al-Qaeda uh, chief Ayman al-Zawari in a Kabul suburb in a home is further proof of this. While the Taliban forces fight the Islamic State, that's what they say, responsible for a series of bombings, including at the Kabul Gurdwara recently, they take absolutely no action against other groups, including Lashkar-e-Toyba and the Jaish-e-Mohammed, that target India from safe havens in Afghanistan. And let's not forget the Haqqanis and other Taliban leaders also responsible for attacks on the Indian embassy, they are all members of the Taliban's acting cabinet. Fifth, the Taliban ended all peace talks when it took power in Kabul. So this was a really another broken promise. It hasn't reopened its talks on peace, on power sharing, on governance, or on any of its international commitments. Does, does the world really have any leverage in the face of this? And how is it using its global levers Let's just take a look at those. The first is, of course, the UN Security Council resolutions, a number of resolutions, as well as the Taliban sanctions regime that was put into place 20 years ago, could actually be used to stop the Taliban regime, for example, from being able to travel as they are doing today, from a number of activities, keeping their funds, visiting places, and all the rest. The second that could be used is a funds freeze. The US at present, for example, holds about $7 billion of Afghan sovereign funds which it could use as incentives for the Taliban to keep its commitments. But instead, for the moment, the U.S. has split that account into half, which could be used to pay 9-11 survivors, and has refused for the moment to disperse the other half. As officials say, they can't guarantee that that money would not reach the hands of terrorists through the Taliban. Uh, the third lever is one of withholding recognition, but thus far, even though the world has not recognized the Taliban, we are seeing this as limited impact. They don't seem to require it immediately. The fourth lever would be to engage the Taliban to open new direct talks on keeping their commitments, particularly towards women and also other global priorities. This could be one way of enforcing them, but so far this one has proven ineffective. The fifth 
is the Afghan refugee population or diaspora as lakhs of Afghans have taken shelter in other countries. The international community could provide them with platforms to speak and to mobilize support within Afghanistan, become a pressure point really. Also, another lever could be to support resistance forces. Let's also turn now to where Indian policy in Afghanistan has been over this one year. In the past one year, in fact, it does seem to be full of contradictions. Uh, to begin with, after nearly a year of keeping the Indian embassy in Kabul closed, you remember all the officials and the ambassador were brought back to India, the government sent back a team of diplomats to reopen the mission, but has not disclosed what it thinks has changed in this one year. Has the Taliban changed? Has the security situation become any better? Hasn't explained that yet. Second contradiction, while the Kabul mission will engage the Taliban, it will also oversee distribution of aid and infrastructure projects, reconstruction. It is not actually going to help Afghans themselves to get visas to India or to perform any consular duties for them. And this is, of course, a move that many Afghans needing to travel to India for their studies and for healthcare have really been protesting, but so far made no headway with the Modi government. Third, the government says it is also seeking assurances from the Taliban on fighting terrorist groups that target India. Yet its interlocutor in the government is the acting interior minister, Sirajuddin Haqqani, whose group is wanted for attacks on the Indian embassy. So that seems to be another curious contradiction there. The fourth, India says it's exploring, reopening trade with Afghanistan, first by air cargo routes and then via Iran's Chabahar port at some time but it won't reopen talks with Pakistan, which at present is the only transit route for trade and arguably has more leverage in Afghanistan, something that India does not for the moment recognize. The fifth, India continues to say it is committed to democracy and to fighting terrorism in the region, yet its soft approach with both the Myanmar junta, and we've covered that on Worldview, as well as now the Taliban regime really brings those commitments into some doubt. As a result of both what we've argued here for India and the world's responses, one year after taking Kabul, the Taliban is clearly taking away the wrong lessons. To begin with, uh, de jure global recognition seems to be irrelevant. De facto recognition that the Taliban thinks it now has is enough. The second, that there's no need to keep any of the promises we listed for you. Uh, the third, the Taliban has learned that stability and the lack of violence really gives rise to international complacency. So if there isn't a big terror attack or there isn't big violence in Afghanistan, uh, then maybe the international community can feel it can afford to look away. In fact, another lesson the Taliban has learned is that US and, and its allies are really distracted easily. First, by of course, Russia and the Ukraine situation, now by China and the Taiwan situation. So it's uh, a capacity to look at Afghanistan is severely uh, curtailed. And the fifth, that the international rule of law, of democracy, of human rights, these are all hard to enforce and many would say at the moment are in shreds. If you look at the examples of Myanmar or US President Biden going to Saudi Arabia, despite earlier commitments not to, you can see how the international community is not able to sustain these pressures. Now we have a lot of reading recommendations for you and I've of course shared many on Afghanistan in the past including last week so please do check those out. I wanted to add some extra ones that are coming out particularly with the one year anniversary of the Taliban takeover of Kabul. So uh, there's the fifth act, America's End in Afghanistan by Elliot Ackerman. He's a former Marine, he's now a prolific author. This book is out this month, in fact you can also check out his interviews to various 
people on online. Uh, the second book, Most Dangerous, Most Unmerciful. These are stories from Afghanistan by a freelance journalist based in Kabul for a while called J. Malcolm Garcia. There is also August in Kabul, America's Last Days in Afghanistan by journalist Andrew Quilty. Then a few from women in Afghanistan. One is called We Are Still Here, Afghan Women on Courage, Freedom and the Fight to be Heard. It's written by Nahid Shalini. But there's a foreword in it by Margaret Atwood, which you might find very interesting. And this has the accounts of women in Afghanistan, many of whom stayed on and how they are faring. An older book by someone who is a favorite author of mine called The Favored Daughter, One Woman's Fight to Lead Afghanistan into the Future. This is by Fawzia Kufi, a remarkable story. This was written in 2013 about her struggles. Of course, she now lives in exile. Then there's Open Skies, My Life as Afghanistan's First Female Pilot. When it happened at the time, the world rejoiced by Nilofar Rahmani. She's, of course, no longer there in Afghanistan. Then there is another book, which is a politically charged book called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. This is by Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad. And of course, both those authors are always expected to be highly critical of U.S. policy. Finally, there's a book that's coming out now called Taliban, The Power of Militant Islam in Afghanistan and Beyond by famous author Ahmed Rashid, who had first written that book called The Taliban. Uh, and this looks at the Taliban and uh, militant Islam spread in Central Asia in particular. We certainly hope you enjoy reading all of those and do join us again here on Worldview from the team. Thanks for watching.